Heavenly Father, God, I just thank you so much for this day. I thank you for all that are here this morning. I just ask for your blessing on our time together. Lord, I pray that you would guide and direct our, our thoughts as we work through this next uh, piece of scripture from Luke. In your name I pray, amen. All right, so have you go ahead and kick the lights on if you could. We having issues over there, computer issues? Not a problem. I don't need a computer. Um. This is sermon number 61 from the gospel according to Luke. This is the 61st sermon from Luke. And we're still in chapter 10. We've had five sermons from chapter 10 already. We're still in chapter 10, but we've moved on to the next little section. So what I'm going to do today, I'm going to give you a heads up today exactly what's going to happen. I'm going to give you two introductory thoughts. Then I'm going to work through the passage of scripture. And then I've got two lessons at the end. Okay, you good with that? All right, so two introductory thoughts. Here's the first two thoughts before we really dig in, uh, as we cover Luke, starting with Luke 10, verse 25, as we go on through the rest, he's working on it. He's almost there. Maybe. Uh, the first thought is this. The next three passages of Scripture are going to deal... None of you are paying attention to me. You're all looking at that screen. Just ignore it. Ignore the man behind the curtain. Um, I'm the wizard. Uh, so the next three passages go together. We're talking about the uh, uh, living as disciples. So we're going to see this one, talk about what it, what it looks like to be a disciple. I hope everybody in here is a disciple of Jesus Christ. That's my hope. So I'm going to talk to you as if you are. And so we're going to talk about what this passage means from that perspective. And so these next three talk about, oh, we're good now. Excellent. We're going to talk about living as disciples. I still don't have control, but there we go. Okay, we're good now. Uh, so this one today, verses 25 to 37. The second one is this. There's a problem with this passage, and it's just the commonness or the, the familiarity of this passage. So the passage we're talking about today has a title that you've probably heard. It's not the title from the scripture, but you've heard this before. It's the parable of the Good Samaritan. Who's heard this before? I'm thinking almost everybody has heard the parable of the Good Samaritan. So anytime you have a passage of scripture that you've heard many times, it's easy to just tune out. Like, I know this already. In fact, it, the reality is this passage is so easy and so direct. I, I, honestly, I think it could preach itself. I mean, I could just say, this is a passage, read it, you're good, you are dismissed. I'm not going to do that, though, by the way. Don't get your hopes up. We're going to talk about it. But this is a very common passage, and I just know that when we dig into a passage like this, it's easy to say, I already know these lessons, I already know where he's going with this, I got this. And so it's important to take a moment and say, okay, I want to come at this as freshly as possible, okay? So I want to encourage you as we dig in here, so I'm going to get to this first verse. As we dig in here, oh, there we go. I want to encourage you to try to listen to it with fresh ears. Can you try to do that? Just fresh ears as we listen to this story, okay? So I'm going to read a verse, give you a little bit of commentary as we work through it, and then at the end I have two lessons. So here we have verse 25. And we don't know at what time this happens, but it, it tells us Luke goes right from the last story into this one. He says, Behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, a lawyer would have been a scholar of, at this time, would have been a scholar of not just the law, but the law of God. Okay, so you got this guy, he's a scholar. I mean, he knows the law. And we get this little bit of an insight. There's two issues plaguing this. The first one is right there. He's putting Jesus to the test. So we know there's a heart issue going on already with this guy, don't we? 
Now, how does Luke know this? I don't know. Was it informed? Was he told this later? Did Jesus tell his disciples later this was what was going on? Regardless of how we know this, we know that the Spirit-inspired Word of God lets us know this was at the heart of this guy. He's seeking to test Jesus. Let's see what he knows. And so he wants to put him to the test. I think the second issue with this question is found in the question itself. What shall I do? All of you guys are great Christians in here, so you already know there's a problem with that, isn't there? What shall I do? You can't do anything. In fact, there's even a flaw just the way he asks it. What shall I do to inherit? Do you do to inherit? Oh, if you're in a soap opera, yes, right? You do to inherit. There's things you're doing, scheming to, do, to inherit, right? But you can't really do something to inherit. And so there's a contradictory element to this question already. Jesus then, he's going to respond. How's he going to respond? Now, you already know part of the answer, but let's, let's try to fresh ears, right? Jesus responds, and he flips it back onto him. He turns it around, and he says this, because I think, I think that lawyer knew the answer he wanted Jesus to say. Have you ever asked people questions like that? Like, you've got the answer, and you're just waiting. I just want them to say, and if they say one word off, I'm going to pounce, right? Now, Jesus could have easily answered this question, but instead he turns it around, and I think kind of makes a point with his lawyer right off the bat. Now, there's two other examples of this in Matthew and Mark that I think are actually different stories because in Matthew and Mark, they share a story of a lawyer putting Jesus to the test, but in those accounts, Jesus just answers the question, and it plays out a little bit different. So I think this might be a different situation going on that Luke shares with us. But Jesus turns it around, and he says to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? I love that. Well, it, it's almost as if saying, hey, you, know, you already know the answer. What, what, what were you going to say? <laughs> and I think this lawyer, who was chomping at the bit to talk anyway, answers. And he says this. He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. That's a great answer, isn't it? Love God, love my neighbor. It's good. Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5 is where he gets this answer, the first half of this answer from. Uh, this is known as the Shema. That first part is the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Everything that you are, love God. Great answer. The second is like it, as Jesus says when he talks about this in Matthew and Mark. He says the second command is like this one, flows from it. Love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So love God, love your neighbor. That's an excellent summary. But I think it's a summary that all present at that situation probably would have known. In Matthew 22 and Mark 12, the question is not, how do I go get eternal life, but what is the greatest commandment? As I mentioned, in Matthew 22, I'll read Jesus' answer there. He said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. That is the great and first commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So if you want a great summary of what we ought to do as human beings, this is it right here. Love God, love your neighbor. In fact, Jesus says next in Luke to this lawyer, said to me, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Do you guys like this so far? 
Do, okay, you got the right answer. Do it, and you'll live. And, and I, I'm not going to read into this, and you will live. I know as a Christian, I think about this, not just live there, but live here. I think there's some things we could pull from that. But I think that Jesus is saying, yeah, you're right. You want to live this eternal life you're talking about. If you want that, do this. Jesus approves the answer. He doesn't tell the lawyer to have faith or to believe. He just says, that's it. You got it. Nailed it. But everyone in the crowd, like I said, probably knew this answer. Now, the lawyer's next question ought to be this. How then can I be saved? Shouldn't it be? How in the world? Who in this room? I'm looking around. You guys are looking at me. It's okay. I'm looking at you. You're looking at me. Who... Who can do this? Who's done this? Anybody here love, you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You've done that perfectly, and you've loved your neighbors yourself. Anybody in here? Yeah, perfect. Liam can't even raise his arm. It's, it's broke. We know, we know Ava hasn't loved her neighbor because she broke your arm. No, that's, I'm kidding. She didn't do that. She didn't do that. Anybody in here? I mean, if, if this is really the answer, we got a new problem, don't we? Is this, that's it? Oh, that's it? I mean, could, could you have walked away from this going, oh, well, that's it? Well, I got that. I mean, no. Who can love God with all of your being and love your neighbor as yourself? Anybody in here? No. Answer is obviously no. This is what the, the question ought to have been next is, how then can I be saved? How then can I get eternal life? Is there any hope for any of us? Love our neighbors as we love ourselves. Let's be honest. We don't ever have a problem loving ourselves, do we? Not really. I mean, I know the world is constantly telling us to do that, but I think we all are having a great love affair with ourselves. Does anybody in this room love other people as much as you love you? Like I said, more importantly, does any of us love God with all of our being? The real tension to this answer might or ought to be right here. And I'm going to tell you right now, every single religion settles right here and does what this lawyer does next, okay? What this lawyer does next captures the heart of every religion on this planet. This lawyer, what he does is he ignores entirely love God, and then he looks at just this other part and says, let's define this in a way that's doable, right? Every religion ignores entirely this first part. Some religions ignore the reality of God entirely. He doesn't even exist. Some people think of him as a force to be dealt with or not being existent at all. Some people move God away from his station of creator and sustainer and the greatest of all things in this universe that would deserve our adoration and praise. They move him away from that to such a way where we'd almost consider it petty. Why would he want our praise and our adoration? Because... See, if I wanted that, that would be petty, would it not? God wants that. God desires that not because he's like us, but because he's altogether unlike us. The reason why it's wrong for us to desire that is because he is the only one deserving of that. And him and his justice and rightness desires all to look to him and worship, not because he's missing out, right? Not because God is up there going, gosh, I just feel so down. He didn't create people because he was lonely. He didn't create us because he, he needed to be 
fed some adoration and praise. He was completely self-sufficient in his glory. And when he looks at his people, all of humanity, and says, love God, why would he do that? Because of who he is. He is the only one worthy of all of that. But most religions, let's ignore that part entirely. And let's take a look at this other part, this interrelational element. And let's, let's define this in a way that is doable or maybe even obtainable. Listen to this next verse. Listen to this next verse and see if you can't feel a little bit of yourself in this question. But he, and then by the Spirit of God, Luke writes with this insight, desiring to justify himself. That's where it's at. Desiring to justify himself, he says, and who is my neighbor? I want you to know that's not a terrible question. When we have the root of the problem here, he's desiring to justify himself, but the question itself is not unfounded. The Greek that is used for neighbor here is this word. I'm not going to attempt to say it. Afterwards, ask Paul. He'll pronounce it for you. Okay? This word that is translated right here, this translated neighbor, carries with it a little bit of the idea of fellowship or community. There's another word that can be translated neighbor. In Luke chapter 1, verse 53, it talks about the birth of John the Baptist, and it talks about Elizabeth, and it says all of her neighbors and relatives came, and it's a different Greek word. This is talking about those who are nearby. So this is not unfounded. In fact, if you look back to the context of that Leviticus 19.18, let's, let's look at the whole verse this time. Leviticus 19.18 says this. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against, listen careful, right? Against the sons of your own people. And then it flows right from that. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And I think that a good Bible scholar could say, if I'm trying to define neighbor here, I might look at this, the first part of this statement and say, my neighbor is my own people. So this scholar of the word, his question is not unfounded, right? Who then is my neighbor? Where do we draw the line? I think it's an excellent question, to be honest with you. Who then ought we to love? Who is my neighbor? And I think there's going to be, you're going to find something about even that question. Who's my neighbor? And the way Jesus answers this is going to just flip everything upside down as he does so often. Don't you love it when he does that? Now, let's take a look. Oh, almost forgot. Scholars in Jesus' day had attempted to answer this question. Can you just imagine them sitting down and let's, let's define neighbor? You know, what does that really mean? Can you, can you feel that? I, I'm going to be honest. I've done things like that. Let's define community or let's define church. What is it really? And so these scholars have said, what is neighbor? What is that really? And scholars in Jesus' day had even gone so far as to say, well, we don't know necessarily what it is, but let's talk about some things that it's not. And so Jesus addresses this in his Sermon on the Mount. There was a saying, a, a teaching at the time of Jesus that said this, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. So they had drawn a line. The love of the neighbor is with our people. But if someone's an enemy, 
then we can hate them. Obviously, you know where this goes with Jesus, doesn't it? But he says, I tell you to love your enemies, right? So we kind of know where Jesus is going already. But again, listen to this with fresh ears because Jesus is going to answer this question by telling a story. And I love it when teachers do this. Don't you love it when a teacher says, I'm going to answer this question by telling you a story because it lets you come to that answer yourself. And in fact, I think what it does is it lets you know that you kind of already know the answer to this question already. I imagine this lawyer as he had defined neighbor in a certain way as who I ought to love. I think that in the depths of his being, he knew I might be off here. And so Jesus tells the story. And I think you guys know this, but let's read through it together here. Verse 30, Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. They may have even broken his arm. Beat him up. This picture, little Liam, on the side of the road. (laughs) Now, Terrible situation. In fact, the road to Jericho was known for its treacherous reality. There was a lot of ravines and crevices, and it would be an easy place for robbers to be able to hide and ambush people. And so this is a very potentially realistic story for the ones that were hearing this. This is probably something that maybe even many of them knew somebody that this happened to. And then Jesus says this next. Now by chance... A priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So imagine here we've got this injured individual dying. And the priest sees, and instead of going over to help, he walks on the other side of the road. Every single one of us, when we hear this story, don't don't you feel like the disdain already for this individual? Can you feel it? Like if we actually saw somebody do that, let's like put a hidden camera, put a beat up guy, and if you were to watch somebody just go, oh, especially if it was someone of a clearly wearing like religious clothing, religious person, you'd be like disgusted. Jesus knows this. This is exactly why I think he's telling it this way. He says, here you got this priest, and he walks by. Now, this priest could have had a great reason for this. In fact, let's look at the second one. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side, both of these individuals may have very, very possibly just gone through their purification ceremony that could take up to a week to go through. And so to touch a dead body, I mean, if this guy's dead and I touch him, that's gone. So they may have had a place to be and they need to get to this place. And they may have had some reasons in their head like, uh, this guy might be in hell, but if I touch, if he's dead, he kind of looks dead already. If I touch this guy, my, I'm, I'm ceremonially unclean at this point. And so they could reason it out in their heads. But even if they did, I don't think a single person listening to this in Jesus' day, and I don't think a single one of us would hear this and go, that's okay. Like that's, is that a good reason? No. I don't think there's a person that would hear this would say, no, I get that. <laughs> Who cares about this person? We don't want them to be ceremonially unclean. No, we know this. We know this in our beings. This is why this story is such, I think this is why this story has resonated with people for generations because it speaks to it. It's like, yeah, we get this. Now, 
because many of you have been in church for a long time. You know what comes next, but I know that there's been probably 20 pastors in your life that have tried to bring this home by trying to give a different example of the person. Because you have to understand, right, as you probably already know, for Jews, a Samaritan was the enemy. Okay? Now, I think a Jewish listener to this story probably would have expected, after these first two examples, to have a third example, and they probably would have expected at this point, let's say a Jewish layman came through, a fisherman or a carpenter or somebody along, some tradesperson came along next. I think that they would have expected that to a degree. Like, yeah, those guys came through. They didn't do it. I see where Jesus is going with this. They probably would have already, I could, I would have been the guy in the crowd going, oh, I bet he's going to have just like a carpenter because he's a carpenter. So I bet he's going to have a carpenter next. Just wait, wait. And then Jesus, what does he say next? Who does it? The Samaritan. That, that doesn't contain the impact that it ought to for us, right? I don't want you to think when you hear this that, like, we, what do we call it? What's the title we give this parable? The what? The Good Samaritan. Okay? That, that really blows it for us because Samaritan has become closely related to somebody who's nice and good and stops and helps people, right? That's how we think of it. Don't listen to this and think automatically that this Samaritan is understanding ultimately what God has called him to do. I think that we see this sort of thing all the time in our world today. I have seen people who I would in many realms almost consider enemy show greater kindness than Christians have. I've known one of the, the guys I used to work with at Georgetown, he was a teacher down at Georgetown, was a diehard atheist. So generous. So kind. When he saw kids in need, he focused. What can I do to help them? And he was just moved with compassion. So we could throw in here, but an atheist as he journeyed. Right? I mean, there's a reality that Jesus, what he's doing here is not just saying the Samaritan was good and these other guys were bad. He's trying to point out who is actually doing this thing. Who understands the word neighbor? The Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds. So the compassion unfolded into action. Pouring on oil and wine, the oil possibly to... To, to curb some of the pain he may have been feeling, the wine to be, work as an antiseptic to kind of kill any infection he might be getting. He brings him to an end, to, takes care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, so it costs him something, gave them to the innkeeper, said, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I'll repay you when I get back. So he's in this with this person for the long haul. And then Jesus asked this question. Now, there's a slight change in the way Jesus asked this question back to the lawyer. And I don't want you to miss it. So let's go back to the, the first part. The lawyer said what? He said, who is my neighbor? In other words, I'm looking, I need to look out at all the people and determine which ones are neighbors and which ones aren't. But listen to the question here. Listen to this. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor? That's different, isn't it? 
And Jesus, again, flips this question over. You're asking it the wrong way. You're looking out at everybody and saying, who's my neighbor? Jesus says, you need to be a neighbor. See, if you finagle over the meaning of that word, you might have a point, lawyer. It's about more than just the people nearby. It's about community. But, hey, who was the neighbor to this person? That's what Jesus asks. Isn't that great? See, I know. You already have lesson one, don't you? I need to be a neighbor, don't I? The lawyer knows the answer, like you know the answer, like they would have known the answer. See, it's so clear. It's right there for you. Just, yeah. Who's the neighbor? The lawyer says it. The one who showed him mercy. And he said, you go and do likewise. Go. There you go. Go and do. Now, there's the text. I think that there are two lessons here that we ought to learn. There are two lessons we can take away from this passage. The first one is the obvious one. There's an obvious lesson. Not who's my neighbor. We ought to have compassion and action towards all that we see and need as much as is humanly possible. This is a great way to live according to God's call for us. I go back to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. Jesus says, you've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies. Right? Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. See, because this is how God operates is what Jesus is saying. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and, the, and, and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. There's not, there's not a, a point, there's not a line drawn, who do I love? If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? This is a great pattern laid out for us to follow. And we could honestly, we could end right here. There's not a person in this room that doesn't have room to grow in being a neighbor to the people in our world. Even the ones that you might classify into the category of enemy, you can be a neighbor to them. Now, let's pause for just a second. Can you picture in your mind, some of you go, I have no enemies. Some of you go, I've got some enemies. <laughs> Picture in your mind those people that if you were operating the way the world operates, you would be justified in hating them. Can you do that? There's some people in your life you go, you know what, if I was, if I was operating the way the world operates, I would be justified in hating them. And you know, and I know, and those readers would have known, that is not what God has called you to do. Who in your life do you have to say, you know what, I, I'm going to have to do some repenting this week. I'm, I'm going to have to repent because there's some people in my life that I do not love or show love to. What that looks like could be 
vastly different. This might be our second look for Wednesday night this week because how you love your enemies could look different than how you love your family. Some of you are like, how? (laughs) But it could look different. Some people you might love by staying away. But let's start. Let's make the foundation right here, right now. God, help me to be a neighbor. To stop looking at the world through a lens that categorizes neighbor, not neighbor. Neighbor, not neighbor. Neighbor, not neighbor. That, that, Jesus completely eliminates that that way of categorizing people. Instead, all we're doing as Christians, as followers of Jesus, is saying, I'm going to be a neighbor to everybody. Some of you, this is easier than it is for others. Some of you know no strangers. Us introverts, this freaks us out. But we ought to be, in whatever way we can, humanly possible, be a neighbor to all around us with our eyes open to need and saying to ourselves, what can we do even if there's cost attached to it? Notice that Jesus, when he ended this statement in Matthew, he ended it with this, you must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And so he just raised the bar of this neighborly behavior sky high which leads us to our second lesson. Because we ought to ask again what the lawyer ought to have asked initially. Who then could have eternal life? I've got no hope. In fact, some of you were feeling that a moment ago because when I told you to picture that person that's your enemy in your head, you're like, "Mm, no, Matt, I hear what you're saying, but it ain't gonna happen. (laughs) I hate them in the core of my being and I'm not ready to give that up yet. You need to. But you know what? There's not a person on this planet that is going to live this out perfectly and we cannot justify ourselves no matter how how much we lower the bar, right? You may have lowered the bar that, well, I'm good to everybody that's good to me. Well, you're acting like the rest of the world then, not as a follower of Jesus Christ. You ought to repent and turn to him. Follow in his ways. Be a true disciple of Christ because this is what he did. But it still leaves us with this little dilemma. Let me just give you the second lesson. Justification. You cannot justify yourself. That lawyer was asking the wrong question. He wanted to try to find a way. Maybe if I lower the bar, I can justify, I can declare myself good, righteous. Can't do it. Justification is through Christ alone. There's several quotes concerning, uh, I'm sorry, in Romans chapter 3, after several quotes concerning the, the sinfulness of human beings, including the one, there's none righteous, no, not one. We get to Romans 3.20, which says this, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. You might be able to justify yourself in your sight. You might be able to justify yourself in the world's sight but you will never justify yourself in God's sight, which is the only sight that matters, by doing all the law. So even if you keep the bar as high as it is, I'm not going to lower the bar, I'm going to keep it up, that just makes it more unattainable, does it not? 
So we all are in the same boat. Not a single one of us can stand just before God according to the law. Love God with all your... I mean, we, we're not even talking about the first part. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. We haven't done that. But love your neighbor the way Jesus has defined this. Not as looking out there as who is my neighbor, but saying I'm going to be a neighbor to all around me. Not a single one of us has accomplished that either, have we? So we all... If we stood before God in this moment, and God popped down here, right here, moved me aside, and he began to declare who is just, there's not a person in this room that would be able to say, I am, apart from the thing that we know and love, the truth of Christ. Let me give you one more passage here that leads us into this. Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 and 11 says, for all who rely on works of the law, if you're relying on this, are under a curse. Some of you feel this curse. When you allow, so let's, let's set aside even this justification an ultimate way, but let's take it down to just a day-to-day basis. How do I think God thinks about me? We, we don't see this all the time, but here's how you can notice this. Have you ever had a day where you did a lot of good things, and you, you kind of, in your heart, you, you're feeling pretty good? And even though you, you, you know you can't ever say this out loud, but somewhere in the back of your mind, you feel like, I bet God's pretty happy with me right now. Now some of you go, no way, I would never do that. But There's another way it creeps up. Let's say you've had a day where you hated everybody. (laughs) Verbally, physically, (laughs) just up here, you just hated everybody. Like, I hate everybody. And you acted out that way in anger, frustration. Have you ever gotten to an end of a day like that and felt, I don't even think I can pray? Is that not the same thing? Are we not doing the exact same thing? We're letting our day-to-day justness before God depend on law. And the more you know law, the more that idea becomes what Paul says, a curse. Because what does he say? Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law. The reformer Martin Luther understood this because the more he understood what God has required of him, the more he recognized, I am a sinner without hope. John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, same thing. I am a sinner without hope. And the more you learn about God, the more this law, if you depend on you accomplishing to make yourself even feel daily just before God, you will ultimately walk in a cursed life because you will walk around and go, I'm pitiful, miserable. I can't attain. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident, obvious, that no one is justified before God by the law. And then he gives us a here, here, the righteous shall live by faith. Christ himself, when he came, loved God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. From the day of his conception to the day of his death, he did that. 
Not only did he do that, he loved his neighbor as himself from the day of his conception to the day, he, which by the way, I, when I think about that, I always think, what did that look like for infant Jesus to be sinless? Right? I mean, I'm sure he cried, but maybe he only cried when he was really hungry and then he stopped immediately when mom came over. Wouldn't that have been great? <laughs> Perfectly, Christ says, do not think I've come to abolish the law of prophets or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. There's a lot of meaning behind that, but one of them is that he came and accomplished all of the law, right down to these two things that's capturing the heart of what the law is all about. Jesus did. And so we have, Hebrews 4.15, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every way in every respect, has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. In this story, Jesus is not the Samaritan. Jesus is the priest who stopped. Right? He is the great high priest who stopped. He's the great high priest who risked his ceremonial cleanness by touching. But as we've already learned from Jesus, when Jesus, in his holiness, touches a leper who is unclean, does it make Jesus unclean? No. When Jesus sees this dead boy on this pier being carried, right? We learn about that in Luke. When Jesus sees that dead boy and he reaches out, is he going to be made unclean by this dead body? No. In fact, not only does he not become unclean, life imparts into this boy. Jesus is the priest who stopped. He's not just the good Samaritan. He's the priest who stopped who accomplished all things and risked his ceremonial holiness in order to make us holy. And then we can read in 1 Corinthians 1, because of him, you are in Christ. Because of him, the Father, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. What's the second one? Righteousness. And sanctification, that means clean, redemption. John Bunyan, one of the things he, clinged, he clung to in his, his uh, autobiography talks about this, this, this concept of the fact that I am unrighteous before God. The thing that pulled him out of the depths of despair was this thought right here, that right next to the Father is Christ, and that Christ was his righteousness. See, the righteousness that we have through faith is Christ. It's him. And you're just before God because he stands eternally next to the Father, interceding for us. And what you find is that as we seek to live this out, what, what, what happens is those who embrace us, in fact, you can never really embrace the I want to be a neighbor until you first embrace the reality that you've been justified by a Christ who was the perfect neighbor. He was the priest who stopped and saved me. And then you find that as Christians, we do, that keeping of the law is no longer about trying to make myself better or to be right with God and I have to do some good things so I can pray. I really got something I really want. I want this job or I want this other thing. I want this person to get healed and I'm just praying about this. But then, okay, I better do some good stuff. That, that just gets obliterated. And we go, he's my righteousness. 
And then you find at work in us, because the Spirit comes to dwell in us, you find at work in us this desire to emulate our great high priest. And we just have this desire to emulate this and to be the neighbor. Not so that we will be righteous. Not to justify ourselves. That's gone. But it's solely, completely, out of such an admiration for him. Does that make sense? changes everything. I'm not going to call you to be a good Samaritan in this world. That's not what the call is to be. It's a great example. But I would call you first and foremost to say, I cannot justify myself. Even if I lower the bar, I'd have to lower the bar so low, we're doing limbo like you've never seen. You're talking about limbo. No, I've lowered the bar to the ground and I'm still tripping over it. Instead, Christ accomplished without ever lowering the bar for me. So in faith, we say, Lord, you are my righteousness. And I'm going to tell you right now, the more you do that, the more you take your heart and your mind off of just trying to figure out who is my neighbor and simply just say, he is my righteousness, you, find that you will find at work in yourself, the more you learn about him, the more this folds out into being that neighbor. Now, I'm going to pray. When I'm done praying, Paul's going to lead us through uh, communion this morning. Um, I know that you may have something to say here in conjunction, but I did want to say one thing. As we get to this, this partaking is meant to be a reminder. I'm probably stealing your thunder. Uh, this partaking is meant to be a reminder of that, that our righteousness, that we're invited into this. And he says, take, eat. Right? This Christ died for you. This perfect high priest died for you. So I encourage you today. You've all missed. You've all lowered the bar in what you think God has expected of you. And even with the lowered bar, you've all still blown it. This is not for people who have not blown it. This is for people who have blown it, but they're looking at Jesus alone and they're saying, he's my only hope. Him alone. And so, walk up, and I want to encourage you to tentatively take that piece of bread and take that cup. And as you sit down, think, Lord, you're my only hope. You are my only hope.